Marilyn Monroe proves she's a star. Jane Russell becomes a mom. Marilyn scandalizes Joan Crawford. And Jane and Marilyn shock Hollywood with their friendship. It's 1953's Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Nineteen fifty three's Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is a classic. Starring Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe, the film showcases both of these glamorous stars in their prime. Under the guidance of the legendary director Howard Hawks, Jane is at her sassy one-liner best and Marilyn shines in her first leading comedic role. And despite the predictions of the press, Jane and Marilyn became great friends during filming. As I've mentioned before, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is one of my very favorite films, and it was the movie that introduced me to Jane Russell and Marilyn Monroe. Both of these amazing stars have remained favorites of mine through the years, and to this day, I can still quote most of the dialogue from the film. I guess it just attests to how many times I watched Gentlemen Prefer Blondes as a kid. I'm so excited to share all about the film, my favorite behind the scenes facts, and what was going on in the lives of Jane and Marilyn around the time of filming. All right, to the plot. Dorothy Shaw, Jane Russell, and Lorelai Lee, Marilyn Monroe, are nightclub performers and best friends. The girls are basically exact opposites. Lorelai is crazy about diamonds, money, and finding a rich husband, while Dorothy seems to go out of her way to exclusively fall for guys that don't have money. But somehow, Dorothy and Lorelai complement each other perfectly and always have each other's backs. Lorelai has managed to find a very wealthy boyfriend, Gus Esmond, played by Tommy Noonan, who's a bit of a square and completely nuts about her. Lorelai and Gus are engaged, but Gus's dad, Mr. Esmond Sr., is positive that Lorelai is only into his son for his money. So to get around his disapproving father, Lorelai and Gus concoct a plan to get married in Europe. Well, the plan doesn't work out. Esmond the Older prevents his son from sailing with Lorelai to Paris, but Lorelai decides to make the trip anyway, and she brings along Dorothy to chaperone. Once on board the ship, Dorothy is beyond pleased to discover that the U.S. Olympic team will be sailing with them, and Lorelai is ecstatic when Gus presents her with a line of credit as they say their goodbyes. Now, a quick side note, Jane Russell, family girl that she was, secured a job for her brother Jamie in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes as one of the Olympic team members. The handsome Jamie is featured quite prominently among the other Olympians and does a great job. I think it's so cool that Jane made it happen. All right, back to the plot. On board the ship, Lorelai can't help herself, and she begins an innocent flirtation with Sir Francis Piggy Beekman played by Charles Coburn. Beekman is an old creeper Lorelai becomes extremely interested in after learning he owns a diamond mine. Dorothy also finds a love interest on board the ship in Ernie Malone, Elliot Reed, a young man pretending to be a rich society boy, but who's actually a private eye hired by Gus Esmond's suspicious father. 
Esmond the Older is convinced that Malone will find evidence of Lorelai cheating on Gus during the trip, which he then plans to show Gus to dissuade him from marrying her. But smart Dorothy catches Ernie taking pictures of Lorelai and Lord Beekman through the porthole window to their room. The incriminating position he photographs them in was completely innocent on Lorelai's part. I mean, who wouldn't want to act like a sheep and let an old guy chant Swahili at you while he pretends to be a python? But unfortunately for Lorelai, in photos, this looks like you're allowing a man who isn't your fiancé to hold you close. So Dorothy and Lorelai concoct a plan to get the film from Ernie before he discovers that they know what he's up to. Naturally, the most logical way to get the film from Ernie's pants pocket is to invite him over for a private dinner party. And drug him. <laughs> That's exactly what Lorelai and Dorothy do. Once Ernie is sufficiently uncomfortable and loopy, the girls remove his pants and get the film. Obviously, by this point, Ernie knows that the girls know what his true reason for being on board the ship is. But Lorelai still makes the mistake of continuing her flirtation with Lord Beekman. She invites Beekman over to tell him about her heroic deed in getting the photos back, and when he asks Lorelai what she'd like in return for her good act, she promptly asks Lord Beekman for his wife's priceless diamond tiara. Well, why not? Beekman says okay and gives Lorelai the tiara just before they dock in Paris. Ernie gets the whole transaction recorded on tape and shows it to Esmond Sr., who then makes Gus cut off Lorelai's line of credit. This of course happens right after Dorothy and Lorelai spend all their money shopping in Paris. To further complicate matters, Lady Beekman presses charges against Lorelai for her missing tiara, which Piggy, that sly backstabbing dog, insists was stolen. Lorelai will not back down on her claim to the tiara and insists that Lord Beekman gave it to her. And besides, it's not like Lorelai could return the tiara even if she wanted to, for she's discovered that it was stolen from her bag. Just when it looks like Lorelai's gonna get in big trouble by the French authorities, Gus shows up at the Parisian nightclub she and Dorothy are performing at. Dorothy is wise enough to see an opportunity here and tells Lorelai to try and convince Gus to give her the money to buy a new tiara for Lady Beekman. And meanwhile, Dorothy will go risk charges for impersonating a witness by pretending to be Lorelai in court. Ernie Malone ends up saving the day when he shows up in court with Lord Beekman and the missing tiara. Turns out, Beekman stole the tiara from Lorelai after pretending to give it to her. Missing tiara recovered, the case is dismissed, and Dorothy and Ernie get back together. Gus and Lorelai do too, for Esmond Sr. followed his son to Paris, and after an enlightening and surprisingly coherent conversation with Lorelai, Esmond was under the impression that Lorelai wasn't very smart, he believes that she really does love his son and gives his blessing to the marriage. And so a double wedding ensues. Lorelai marries Gus, Dorothy marries Ernie, and they all live happily ever after. And that's the end of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. In June of 1951, Jane Russell adopted her daughter, Tracy, and became a first-time mother. It was an incredibly lucky twist of fate, as Jane had been told by various adoption agencies that it would take at least two years for her to adopt any child in the U.S. Jane viewed the miracle of Tracy's speedy adoption as an answer to her heartfelt prayers, 
and loved every minute of being a new mother. As she says in her autobiography, quote, having a baby in the house was probably the most exciting thing that happened to me. It was something to wake up for and something to hurry home to after work, unquote. I just think that is the sweetest thing. Jane recognized just how lucky she'd been with the ease of Tracy's adoption, and remembering the projected two-year wait she'd been told for all U.S. adoptions, lost no time in starting the search for a little boy to adopt next. But her leads in the U.S. all quickly turned to dead ends. This, coupled with an invitation she received from King George and the royal family to attend a command performance in London, led Jane to consider the possibility of adopting a child abroad. While in Europe for the command performance in the fall of 1951, Jane visited orphanages in England, France, Italy, and Germany in search of the son she longed for. But Jane's visits proved disappointing as she discovered the red tape that surrounded adopting a child abroad. Jane seemed to momentarily sidestep all of this red tape when an Irish woman contacted her about adopting the 15-month-old son she couldn't provide for and so baby Thomas was happily welcomed into the Waterfield home. The bureaucracy did catch up with Jane back in the U.S., however, when Parliament informed her that by British law, only British subjects could adopt British children. She'd have to return Thomas to his parents. Jane was flabbergasted at this development, especially since Thomas was Irish, with an Irish passport to prove it. But as Parliament pointed out, the child had been born in London, so as a dual citizen, the government could demand his return. Everyone, including the attorneys at Jane's studio, RKO, told her she needed to return Thomas to avoid an international incident. But Jane stood her ground. She spoke with the immigration department and hired a barrister to defend Thomas's biological parents in England, who wished for Thomas to stay in America with his new family. A harrowing nine months later, the judge ruled that Jane could keep Thomas and his adoption and U.S. citizenship were at last finalized. I so admire Jane for sticking to her guns despite the advice of others. What's even more admirable to me is that Jane's adoption experiences inspired her to found the World Adoption International Fund, or WAIF, to ease the process of inter-country adoptions for others. As Jane shares in her autobiography, Quote, I had my own children, yes, but I couldn't forget the children I'd seen in the orphanages. There were too many people waiting, longing for children here. It just wasn't right. The laws were made to help people, not hinder justice. Unquote. At the advice of Eleanor Roosevelt, no less, Jane moved forward in organizing and funding WAIF without government assistance. Roosevelt reportedly told Jane that, quote, if you can possibly do it on your own, you'll get it done much better and quicker. Stay on your own and just plow ahead." Unquote. Through the efforts of Jane and other similar-minded individuals and organizations, the Orphan Adoption Amendment of the Special Immigration Act of 1953 was passed, which allowed children to come into the U.S. off the yearly quota if they were to be adopted. This legislation, coupled with Jane's continued hard work over the next few years, led to the official founding of WAIF in 1955. So when Jane was asked to star in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, she was one busy lady, juggling her career, new motherhood, and her efforts to get WAIF off the ground. 
but Jane's busy schedule didn't keep her from delivering one of the best performances of her career in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. 20th Century Fox initially bought the screen rights to Gentlemen Prefer Blondes with the intent to put Betty Grable in the lead role. But by 1952, the studio was bracing to replace the bubbly box office gold Grable with a new blonde bombshell. And at the time, studio head Daryl Zanuck still wasn't so sure that Grable's successor would be Marilyn Monroe. Marilyn presented her studio with an interesting problem in the early 1950s. There was great public interest in her. Marilyn photos, interviews, and general publicity always did very well for the studio. But her films were another story. Marilyn Monroe was not big box office. It was the insightful director, Howard Hawks, who finally pinpointed the trouble with Marilyn. As Hawks told 20th Century Fox head Daryl Zanuck, who kept casting Marilyn in dramas, quote, you're making realism with a very unreal girl, unquote. Howard Hawks told Zanuck to stop putting Marilyn in dramas and to let her try her hand at a starring comedic role. And Hawks thought Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, under his direction, would be the perfect vehicle to finally turn Marilyn Monroe into the box office star she should be. But Zanuck wasn't about to spend a lavish budget on a film if it were to depend solely on the Monroe name and her shaky box office track record, especially since, in his mind, Marilyn couldn't sing or dance, both of which there'd be plenty of in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Enter Jane Russell. Hawks assured Zanuck that he could get his old buddy Jane to play the other female lead in the film. This more than satisfied Zanuck, who knew Jane Russell would draw an audience to the film no matter how badly Monroe potentially did. So it was full steam ahead. Marilyn Monroe finally had her big chance to show the world, and herself, just what she could do. And she wasn't about to blow it. Mostly. There was a self-destructive Marilyn incident during the filming that actually led to one huge improvement in the film and the immortalization of a classic Marilyn Monroe number. But at the time, Marilyn's behavior seemed catastrophic to the success of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. The drama went down when Marilyn insisted on wearing a sheer, gold lame, low-cut gown from Gentlemen Prefer Blondes to the Photoplay Awards in February of 1953, where Marilyn would be honored as Best Newcomer. The gown's designer, Billy Travilla, begged Marilyn not to wear the fragile dress, which he had designed to look good on film, not necessarily to look classy worn out and about to a fancy awards banquet. Joe DiMaggio was reportedly so embarrassed by the dress, he refused to attend the awards ceremony with Marilyn, who he was dating at the time. Marilyn did wear the dress, but the public outcry at her perceived indecency was great. Joan Crawford, who, by the way, never, ever wore anything risque in her entire life, was the first to point an accusatory finger at Marilyn and told the press, quote, It was like a burlesque show, but those of us in the industry just shuddered. She should be told that the public likes provocative feminine personalities, but it also likes to know that underneath it all, the actresses are ladies, unquote. Wow, some choice words from Joan Crawford. Maybe it's just me with my 2020 perspective, but looking at Marilyn in that gold lame dress at the Photoplay Awards, I can't help but wonder what all the name-calling and judgment was about. I think she looks amazing, and I don't find her dress shocking. 
Again, I'm sure the difference in eras plays a large part in my inability to see why Marilyn was taken to task for this gown, but Crawford's accusation was surely an overstatement made by an older actress who wasn't yet ready to give up the limelight. Daryl Zanuck was so worried that Marilyn's wardrobe choice and Joan Crawford's words would affect the box office of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Crawford even planted the idea that women's organizations should boycott Marilyn's films in disgust at her attire, that Zanuck had Billy Travilla design a less revealing gown for Marilyn to wear during the classic Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend number in the film. And thank heavens he did. Otherwise, we all would have been deprived of that fabulous, iconic pink gown Marilyn eventually wore. Had Zanuck not ordered the wardrobe change, we would have been graced with Marilyn wearing an unnoteworthy and rather unflattering showgirl getup. For a picture of what Marilyn was originally set to wear, visit my website, macronsandmimi.com, and search for Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. There's no way the Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend number would be the classic scene it is today if Marilyn would have worn the showgirl thing instead of the iconic pink gown. Photoplay Awards dress scandal aside, Marilyn Monroe never worked harder than she did on Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Daryl Zanuck even did his part to let her concentrate solely on the film by announcing that Marilyn wouldn't be available for interviews or any sort of publicity during the duration of the production. Marilyn stayed up all hours of the night running lines with her acting coach, and then it was back to the studio the next morning with Marilyn looking, in Jane Russell's words, as if she'd just crawled out of bed for strenuous dance rehearsals with Jack Cole, the choreographer on the film. Jane and Marilyn both considered themselves non-dancers, but working with Cole, known as one of the best choreographers in the business, they were certainly in good hands. As Jane shares in her autobiography, quote, Jack was every dancer's idea of a genius, and many people were terrified of him, but I adored him madly. Jack worked dancers to death, but with Marilyn and me, he was patience itself. He knew we didn't know our left foot from our right, but he stayed tirelessly with us. I worked until I got fuzzy-headed. Marilyn would stay for an hour or two after I left." Unquote. Those extra hours that Marilyn stayed and worked with Jack Cole certainly paid off. As much as I love Jane, it's Marilyn who has that extra bit of style behind her dancing in the film. Both Marilyn and Jane are a joy to watch, but Marilyn just oozes confidence in the dance numbers. She struts, moves her hips fluidly, and she's sharp with her movements when she needs to be. If Daryl Zanuck thought Marilyn was no dancer before Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, the film certainly showed him that dancing was one of her untapped talents. Though Marilyn's Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend is the best remembered number from Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, Jane also had a big dance number in the film, Ain't There Anyone Here for Love, in which she sings and dances around the gym and indoor pool while the U.S. Olympic team works out. At the end of the dance, Jane falls into the pool, but as Jane shares in her autobiography, this was a complete accident that ended up in the final cut of the film. Quote, at the end of the number, the guys were supposed to dive over me as I sat down by the pool. One poor cluck didn't clear me, and I went head first into the pool and came up looking like a drowned rat. The scene had to be reshot. But in the final cut, the first take was used, including my impersonation of a drowned rat. It was better." Unquote. I don't know about you, but I have always wondered if Jane's fall in the pool was planned or accidental. 
Now we know. With two of Hollywood's most gorgeous women working side by side every day, the press was chomping at the bit to write about all the nasty cat fights that would inevitably break out. But to everyone's surprise, Jane and Marilyn became fast friends. As Jane shares, quote, We got along great together. Marilyn was very shy and very sweet and far more intelligent than people gave her credit for. The press tried their best to work up a feud between us, but they were sniffing up the wrong tree." Unquote. Jane and Marilyn got close enough during filming that Jane convinced Marilyn to attend one of her weekly Bible study groups. Marilyn and Jane also bonded over the special men in their lives. Jane was married to Robert Waterfield, an NFL star, and Marilyn was dating and seriously considering marriage to baseball legend Joe DiMaggio. Our girls got along together so well, in fact, that when Marilyn's nerves got the better of her and she'd refused to leave her dressing room, it was Jane alone who was able to coax her out and onto the set. As Jane says in her book, quote, Marilyn started coming to the set late, and that didn't go over too well, so I talked to Whitey, her makeup man. He told me she came in long before I did and was really ready, but she'd stay in her dressing room and putter. I think she's afraid to go out, he said. So from then on, I'd stand in her doorway and say, come on, Blondel, let's go. And she'd say, oh, okay, in her whispery voice, and we'd go on together. She was never late again, unquote. Okay, doesn't that just make you love Jane Russell? If you're familiar with Marilyn Monroe's life, then you know about Marilyn's reputation for staying in her dressing room for hours, sometimes even refusing to come to the set all day. Marilyn's lifelong crisis of confidence and fears of mental illness, we'll save that for another podcast, undoubtedly contributed to these times when she just couldn't bring herself to leave her dressing room. But can't we all relate to the difference an understanding friend can make on a hard day? I just think the world of Jane Russell for the patience, friendship, and confidence she gave sweet Marilyn. These were things that very few people in Marilyn's inner circle would ever give her. It's clear that Marilyn recognized and greatly appreciated Jane's friendship, for in one of Marilyn's very last interviews before her tragic death, she was sure to mention Jane and what a wonderful friend she'd been while filming Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. It really speaks to the great friendship between Jane and Marilyn that the inequities in the way Daryl Zanuck treated the two stars didn't affect how they felt about each other. According to most sources, Jane was paid $400,000 for the film, while Marilyn earned $750 a week, barely able enough to cover her living expenses, which included the care of her mother in a private mental institution. As Marilyn recounted in a 1962 interview, quote, I couldn't even get a dressing room. I said, finally, look, after all, I'm the blonde and it's gentlemen prefer blondes because still they always kept saying, remember, you are not a star. I said, well, Whatever I am, I am the blonde." Unquote. That she was, and there is no way that Daryl Zanuck could deny Marilyn's star power and finally box office value with the one-two-three punch of her 1953 film releases. Niagara, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and How to Marry a Millionaire all brought the studio a combined total of $25 million at the box office. No other star made more for their studio that year than Marilyn Monroe. 
Gentlemen Prefer Blondes Alone made $12 million at the box office after its July 15, 1953 premiere, and its financial success would go on to influence the course of both Jane's and Marilyn's careers. Howard Hughes would attempt to capitalize on the Gentlemen Prefer Blondes formula by putting Jane in the French line in 1954 and Gentlemen Marry Burnett's in 1955. Neither of these films had Marilyn, but at least Hughes had half of the dynamic duo. As for Marilyn, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes catapulted her to stardom with a new screen persona, the quintessential, glamorous, dumb blonde that Daryl Zanuck would try to have her play on repeat. But even as early as her very next film, How to Marry a Millionaire, Marilyn was already looking to break from the screen image she had so perfectly crafted hoping that by diversifying her talents, she could avoid the fate pushed on Betty Grable, the blonde bombshell Marilyn herself had replaced. Marilyn's starting of her own production company and classes at the Actors Studio is also another story for another podcast. And that wraps it up for my podcast on Jane, Marilyn, and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. Thank you for listening to the Vanguard of Hollywood podcast. Be sure to come back next time for my final podcast on our Star of the Month, Jane Russell, as I discuss The Revolt of Mamie Stover from 1956.